0: Uh, nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm Jordan Weber. I guess I'll give you an introduction of who I am first, and then we'll just get started. Um, I I work at the University of North Carolina Wilmington as a lecturer in fitness and health time, healthful living education. I'm running out of breath because I just ran downstairs, the stairs. But <clears throat> um, I was looking for my phone. I was like, oh, "Where is it?" Ran up the stairs, ran down, got my training in for the day. So. Uh, I'm done now. I can just rest, right? You're good. You're good. Yeah. So, um, I work backdrop. at
1: the. You got the best backdrop I've seen.
0: Yeah. This is uh, this is the gym. That's awesome. Okay. Well, you're. That's
1: great. Mm. David, you're a surfer,
0: huh? Yeah, surfer, uh, stand-up paddleboarder. Uh, I'm from Buffalo originally. So I wasn't really a surfer until I moved down here 10 years ago, North Carolina, right on the water. And um, I've been here for 10 years. I started uh, in after school programs as a PE teacher, really, and a health teacher. So I came here for my teacher licensure. I got my uh, bachelor's in physical education from SUNY Brockport. Um, And that's a big phys ed school, big coaching school. Big, you know, they have rugby there. They, I think they asked me to play rugby. I was like, what's rugby? I didn't even know anything about rugby. I was like, what? I'm a soccer player, but I probably should have did that, but I never got into it. And um, played soccer, college soccer, two years, D3, ECC. We uh, went to the semifinals and won, and then we lost in the finals, but it was really, really fun, really competitive. Uh, I have three older brothers. Uh, I have an uncle with an intellectual disability, which is kind of my backdrop. So I work primarily with people with disabilities, but I teach other classes. But my main role is really the adaptive physical activity program, uh, fitness for personal trainers, and then also preparing K through 12 teachers to become PE teachers and coaches. So that's my primary role. Uh, I've been in this role for about five years, three three years full time and 10 years part time. Um, So I work with kids with disabilities. I've worked with the athletes at our school So I've done functional range conditioning or mobility training with our athletes. I used to teach yoga I used to be certified yoga, but I I went the mobility route So I've kind of altered my my training so to speak after I I learned the functional range systems, which is a mobility uh, specialization I really like that and um, since then I've been just teaching this semester I'm teaching childhood obesity, coaching, sports and society, uh, and adapted physical activity. And I have some interns that are uh, personal trainers out in the field right now. So that's my audience. So that's kind of who you're speaking to. So the first question I was going to have for you was, you know, what's your background? Where are you from? And how did you get to where you're at? Yeah, well, I was going to say there,
1: first of all, thank you for for having me on here. Um, My wife works as a, a therapeutic horse riding instructor. So, in fact, right next to Exos, where I used to work in Phoenix, Arizona, there was a place called Horses Help, which was a therapeutic horse riding uh, location. And so she, she's got into that. And so we have a huge passion in our family for, let's say, the application of, of fitness to to that population. So it's great. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nice overlap uh, in, in those areas. But, um, in terms of my background, you know, high level strength conditioning coach for, gosh, almost 17 years now. Uh, my, my first gig as a 15 year old was working in a gym, you know, so I think for me, fitness and strength conditioning notably has always rightly or wrongly been in my blood my first real positive experience was with a guy named rudy he was my high school strength coach mm-hmm. and you know every day rocked up like you said he used to Two thirty, open up the gym program was on the wall and you know he was expecting you to be beyond time even though you didn't need to be there if you started to show a trend of being there he started to place that expectation on you and so i learned very early that a coach you know really the coaches that i looked up to are, are people that develop you as a person as much as they develop you, let's say as as a player or as an athlete, and so it was it was him as an exemplar. Probably says, "She's this is something I could do." You know the way he's making me feel. What a great career to do that for other people. And so went on to get a, a degree at exercise science, similar to the one it sounds like the you run, Jordan, at Oregon State University. Joined uh, Exos at the time it was called Athlete's Performance. Some people might know that place uh, Exos now. Mark Verstegen. And the like. So I worked there from 2006 to 2016, so 10 years, primarily working with NFL, uh, running our education department, which is now international. I inevitably got a PhD in basically motor learning and Mm -hmm. movement behavior and coaching behavior. It was kind of an aggregate of those major areas, but as I'm sure we'll get into, really interested in how coaches' communication impacts the experience and the learning of, of the athlete, the client, or the patient. And then I have an opportunity now to move where I currently am in uh, Irish rugby. So my, my title is one of those fancy ones, Head of Athletic Performance and Science. But basically that means I get to uh, to work across four professional teams and all of our national teams. And so it's like a, a centralized union is the term we use in rugby. And so I work across all of those teams from a strength conditioning leadership perspective. And probably it's 70-30 leadership to on the ground, keeping the sword sharp. So that's a a quick tour of my last 17 years.
0: Okay. Yeah, I noticed you got your PhD. I got my EDD in uh, educational leadership uh, with curriculum instruction and assessment. So similar to programming where you're really looking at the long term, not the short term, but you're also looking at the itinerant and formatively and summatively assessing our athletes or students, um, what did you take from your PhD that uh, helped you become a better writer or maybe a better, uh, uh, you know, judger of, or, or evaluator of information and how have you been able to sifle that information and, and teach others that information?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a really, it's a good question. You know, I'll, I'll get a lot of people who ask me who are in the professional space wherever that is and hey should i go get a phd and the first question i always ask them is, well why why do you think you need or want a phd and ultimately i say nobody needs a phd if you go in thinking that you need it but that isn't complemented by you wanting it and wanting what it takes to get it then it's probably not going to be a fruitful path you know i still know students who were in my cohort who haven't finished, and I graduated whatever it was back in 2016, and they're still trying to get their thesis done. Your nods suggest you probably know people in a similar route. So mm-hmm. the last thing you want to be doing is, is going down that path if you're uncertain. And so if we look at you know what a professional doctorate is, you know it, it's a it's fundamentally a philosophy degree. Well, well, hold on, you didn't get a philosophy. Well, yeah, we did. What is philosophy? Philosophy, when it comes down to, go right back to the Socratic method. It's knowing how to ask really good questions, and it's knowing how to identify a process to answering those questions, or at least getting close to answering those questions. And so that's what a, a PhD is all about. And so the first thing I'll say is, that's always been part of me. You can see my tattoo on my forearm says truth. Mm. Pursuing truth is, is my core value. And in, in recognizing, if you actually notice that the U is red, there, there's personal truth, there's Truth that is not concrete or absolute, but then there is, so to speak, objective truth out there that we can be pursuing. And so that was always part of my bloodline. So that was always driving me. Ultimately, though, it's not enough just to want to pursue truth to go get a PhD. So you have to kind of have, in my opinion, an itch to scratch. And so for me at the time, I was about six years into my own journey around You know the language of coaching looking at how our words impact an athlete's focus and how ultimately that focus in large parts determines their performance in the moment but also their learning in the future and so because i had that idea and i had that thirst i was a perfect candidate to go then pursue a phd but implied in your and really interesting jordan because yes Did I do the lit reviews? Did I do the research? Did I get published in and around my my questions and area of interest, which is around coaching and and sprinting basically? Yes. But were those the biggest takeaways? No, no. The biggest takeaways were, as you just said, learning how to ask better questions, knowing how to then go out and find the information that is available to answer those questions, and then being very clear and identifying where there ultimately is a gap where new information needs to be generated, which is what we call the scientific method and research. And so ultimately, when I look at those three major areas, how to ask a good question, how to isolate, find, and judge then the research that is available to answer it, and then being very clear where there's an- those answers don't exist so that you can either go down a research path or use best judgment and intuition, those are invaluable generalizable skills that I bring to what I do every day in, in a leadership and coach education and coaching role. And so we, we can certainly get into more detailed skills, but I would say that would be my, my elevator pitch to anyone who wants to know what you're going to get out of a PhD.
0: Now, is this all stemming from that coach that motivated you all still? Or where is this drive coming to, to want to know these truths?
1: Well, that, that is, in, in all things, I would say probably in part to just, you know, how I'm wired internally. But, you know, mom and dad, in my household growing up, you know, the, the, the pursuit of truth and honesty probably were implied as the most important values. And if you asked my father, you know, he would, he would echo that. So I think that part of me really came from my upbringing. The context came from Rudy in high school and then the specific interest on the language of coaching well well, that probably goes to a mentor that i met in college and you know you noted earlier that you, know, you work with personal trainers and for me one of the recommendations i give to anybody whether you whether you think you want to be a personal trainer a physical therapist strength coach sport coach i don't care who you are if you want to get into the movement profession spending your early years even just two or three as a personal trainer is invaluable you know it teaches you programming it teaches you sales it teaches you time management relationship building and just knowing how to be adaptable you know when you're a head strength coach for a college football team those players have to be there right they're not paying to be there and a lot of them are going to be of a similar age and interest might even come from a similar area but when you're a personal trainer, you can be working with people across the generations, across the interests, across the personality types. And sure, there's there's a truth in that for, for athletes as well, but I think it's just a great skill set. So that's, that's, a, that's a footnote, that's a, a sales pitch to be a personal trainer for a few years. But to, back to my story here, I met a, a mentor who was called the lead personal trainer and I was shadowing him and I was trying to ascertain why is he perceived as being the best? Like, what is it about this person that people say he's the best, he's the one to go to? And so I just started to observe. I'm like, well, he's still bench pressing on Monday. (laughs) He's still doing bicep curls and triceps like everybody else. And so I started to realize, sure his knowledge of anatomy and fizz was, was high level. And so he could, he could spit and riff on the body as good as anybody, but his programming wasn't that much different. Ultimately what I realized that was different was how he communicated. And he, he would do this thing where he would protect the moment right before the person moved. And he just, he kind of had this charismatic personality, this unbelievable posture that just demanded attention. And he would just, it's almost like he would just grab their attentional spotlight and put it right on him and say, this is what I want you to focus on. And so he was so precise and consistent. And it took me months before I picked up on this. But once I noticed it, I was able to hone in on it. Mm -hmm. And I realized this is what makes this guy incredible. It's what he says, how he says it, and when he says it. And that's where they're getting the big differences, not only in the results, but in their experience, right? It's one thing to say, hey, I'm getting my clients better, but does your client or athlete feel, right? This is, is their experience of you one of, I know when I'm with Jordan, I'm walking out of that session better. And so that's what he was amazing at. Every session, they felt like they were making leaps and bounds, improvements, and it had everything to do with how he coached, not what. coached and so I banked that idea back when I was 19 now I'm whatever it is 36 now and the book just came out this year so it it took me that long inevitably to mature the ideas test them out research them and make them my own but that's really where the idea for my work began
0: okay nice yeah I I was a personal trainer for a while and I, I learned a lot I learned definitely how to fail you know i def- I definitely learned what you shouldn't do the first couple of years because you're you're just trying to figure it out at the start and then, like you said someone captures your attention you begin to focus on their behaviors you become to become you become more like them and then you kind of become yourself in a different way and then you kind of lead in different capacities um and then what I have here is let's see here. You talked a lot about communication, and that's kind of where we're headed next. Uh, how do you help learners become better communicators? I know we can be better listeners, and we can focus uh, more. I know you have a, a lot in your book about attention, um, but where would you start off when you're talking about communication?
1: You know, it's there, there, there. There's so many. There's so many different ways to to approach it, but you know, ultimately what is the core of communication for me the core of communication is i have something in my head that i understand in a certain way it means that this is an important word it means something to me and even with what we're doing right now i am trying to select words to articulate to you that meaning Mm-hmm. Such that you can take those words, they literally travel through the air as, as sound waves, they hit your ears, and your brain translates that sound waves into those words, mm-hmm. that then you can download the meaning out of. And we're going to call that shared meaning. And so the, the core purpose of communication is creating shared meaning, such that there's understanding. Here I have a stopwatch, right, so that we both understand that this is a stopwatch. So in the way that I understand this is a stopwatch, you understand it in the same way, so that we can act in accordance with that shared information. Why is that important? Well, if you work for me as a strength and conditioning coach and I ask you to do something, I have an idea of what that ask looks like in behavior. If you don't process that information as I intended it, then we don't have shared meaning. We have, by definition, missed communication communication implies that there is shared meaning being developed so that's the ultimate purpose you said it in a very important word listening right And in, in, in this conversation we're going back and forth you're listening to my answers I'm listening to your questions and so is listening a skill a hundred percent it is and if I go on to write a second edition of my book I will spend more time talking about listening because for me, it is critical. The way we listen can either increase or decrease the odds of me actually hearing what you mean. Not just the words, but hearing what those words mean. What do you mean, Nick? Well, if as you're talking, I'm already formulating my response. If as you're talking, I'm already judging what you're saying. The act of me thinking about what I will say or the act of me judging what you you are currently saying, that blocks my ability to really take the information in because my brain is being occupied with a secondary task. So the idea of being an active listener means that I completely put all my attention on you, your words, your tone, your body language to make sure I give you the best chance to give me that meaning. And then obviously in in a conversation, as you've already done here, I might repeat back. So, Jordan, what I'm hearing you say is this. And so, to summarize so far, we really have these two core skills we have speaking, we have listening, with the ultimate purpose being to create shared meaning. And so, if we then zoom into, and obviously, I'll allow you to guide me here if we have specific questions. When we start talking about working with an athlete, how many times. I know what to do i just don't know how to do it okay i know what to do i just don't know how to do it and so for me that by definition is the reason we have coaches because we have athletes that either want to do something their goal their desire my kid wants to learn to play soccer so they want to learn something you even might have an elite person that knows what to do right they can explain the biomechanics they can even explain what's going wrong in their own body but they just don't know how to fix that technical thing that's going wrong. And so what a coach's job is meant to do is to help create new meaning in the mind of an athlete, client, or patient. And we do that through many ways, but one of the primary ways we do that is through communication. We identify words that unlock or facilitate the development of knowledge so that now the athlete says, ah, now I get it. And now they go to perform the golf swing They go to perform the sprint and that new meaning, that new knowledge unlocks something in their body. And we've all had that experience as a coach. When we come up with that fresh cue that gives them just that little bit of perspective shifting on how to perform this skill. And all of a sudden their eyes go wide and they're nodding. They haven't even done it yet, but they know it's going to work. And then they go perform the movement and it all comes to life. And we call those the light bulb reps. So it all goes back to this core that the reason we have communication is to create and collaborate around meaning making, adding something to the person that is meaningful to them.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's a challenge for people to really listen because as soon as you say your, your first words, that other person is already thinking of a response before they're done speaking. So it's not really organic, it becomes kind of stiff. So as I was listening to you as I'm as you're listening to me you're I was thinking of oh well, maybe I should say this or maybe I should th- say that but I wasn't maybe fully listening so I was like all right now I just need to stay ahead of the wave kind of so to speak and kind of tune in before I articulate a response so I can give a better response instead of just saying, oh, I need to talk about that as quick as I can. And then you kind of summed it up with you can assess this with those light bulb moments where people are like, oh, oh, they, it kind of goes off. And you're like you see it in the client's eye or the uh, athlete's eye or something like that.
1: 100%. 100%. And just to, to articulate, if people are listening like, well, I'm a coach, is listening important? Or, or rather, when is listening important? Well, if I'm working with you, Jordan, and you're my client and you're not getting something and I've run out of cues, right? I, I, I've given you all the ones I can come up with for the back squat, let's say, and none of them are working. Well, I, I can pivot them and say, listen, this is what we're trying to improve. Maybe it's keeping your knees straight ahead, you know, or s- squatting deeper or a body position. Doesn't matter. Pick your flavor of the month. Okay. And I can say this is what we need to improve what do you think you could focus on to improve that? Now, the second I deliver that question on your doorstep, I need to be active, actively listening. What words are you using, right? What literally, like verbs, what are the action words you're using? Nouns, how are you referencing the environment around you, right? And, and, and thus, you might be able to come up with a cue or you might be able to come up with something just enough for me to be able to riff on to help you better understand something. and So this is where oftentimes a coach might ask a question, not necessarily intending to get a real answer. It's more, I'm questioning you. What I advocate for is, no, ask your athletes questions. Involve them in the learning process. Actually collaborate and have conversations because ultimately the words that make the most sense to you, Jordan, are the words in your head not the words in Mm mind. So if I get you talking and explaining what's going on in your own thought process, you're serving up to me the words, the examples, the phrases, I can then use to lower the barrier of understanding, because quite literally, what do I start to do? I start to speak your language. Mm -hmm. Too often we speak from our own biases Mm -hmm. and forget that the whole reason we're speaking is to help you get better. So why not involve your language in the literal conversation when it comes to the coach-client relationship?
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think a way I like to do that in the adaptive physical activity setting is allowing the individuals with disabilities to lead the class in a physical activity. They know the okay. activities. They've done them 100 times. They lead 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And that's how I started a nonprofit uh, Forward Fitness, where we kind of help gyms set up programs to where they get sponsorships for adaptive physical activity programs. So it's, you awesome. know, trainers working with people with disabilities. And we actually had a class for three years where we had three individuals with disabilities teaching a 60-minute class as a team. And so all the peers with disabilities would come to the class. They would teach them. They speak in their language. You know, I did a research study on it. I'm going to be publishing hopefully this year. And it'll talk about how it, you know, built that community, built the communi- uh, communication, the motivation to participate. You know, you're, you're seeing your, your friends, you know, speak in their language. And then you're also learning their language as they're coaching each other. So that's one way we've done that in the Adapted Physical Activity setting. So I think that's really cool how you kind of mentioned that, how you kind of, you're speaking their language. Because I know that we talk about that in critical pedagogy, you know, in uh, education and curriculum where... If you're not speaking the student's language, they're not going to understand you and you have to really understand their background, where they're coming from, why they're you know, in your, in your uh, presence and stuff like that. Um, moving forward to motivation, uh, what is motivation? And maybe just talk about how you can help someone you know, be more passionate about what they're doing and why they're doing it and like setting them on that path as a coach. Cause I know that you've talked about a coach as a carrier in this vessel. And I've talked about it as like a ship, you know, you can get on the ship, but you might have to row the boat a little bit, you know, or you might, you might get sick. Well, we'll if you get, if you get sick, the boat's going to take you, but you're going to still have to, you know, pay your toll when you get off, you know, that type of thing. So, you know, how do we motivate, motivate them while they're on the vessel to like stay the path and the, they know that we're speaking the truth
1: so it's a great question i I don't at the end of the day we we talk about this idea of incentives or or motives like what motivates me and the, the first thing we can just check off is this whole idea of am i being motivated to act by internal drivers or external drivers right as a parent forcing me to do something? Are they paying me? Hey, if you score X amount of goals, I'll give you a tenner per goal. You know, am I being motivated externally by perceived social pressure? You know, Hey, all my friends are doing it or physically. Well, I want to look like that person on the magazine. So we have this categorically all these external motivators and they, they live kind of on a continuum, let's say of, of, of healthy and sustainable, such as maybe you like to to only do activity with your friends. Well, is that a bad external motivator? I wouldn't say that's a bad external motivator. My wife much prefers to go swimming with her friends than by herself. And I think that's a great external motivator. She still has an intrinsic value for swimming. She just gets a little bit of an upregulation of joy when she does it with friends. And we'll get to why that is in a moment. You mentioned earlier, community. Community is a huge part of our, our basic motivational needs on the other end. Someone paying me to do something is very, very quickly going to start to erode my, my joy, my love of it. You know, uh, it becomes different in professional sports where I'm also doing it because the pay ultimately allows me to pay my bills. It becomes more of a job. But typically if you're paying a, a young kid to score goals, pretty soon that's going to erode their natural joy because instead of pursuing the joy, they pursue the payment which for many people is superficial and it'll be, it'll be short lived. And so we have to recognize that there's external motivators, there's internal motivators, and there really is not right and wrong, but there's sustainable clean burning motivation. And there's non-sustainable, let's say crude oil type motivation. Our job is to try to facilitate the clean burning, intrinsic forms, self-generating forms of motivation. And so how, how does that happen? I believe the spark has to start with the individual. I cannot create motivation in you. I cannot create desire in you. I can't force you to love, you know, skiing or snowboarding. You've got to come to the table with that flicker, with that light, so to speak, lit. My job then as a coach is to identify what are the features of an environment and right? What are the interactions that are either going to increase the strength of that flame, or decrease the strength of the flame, but we have to recognize as coaches, the flame begins with them, I cannot force you to want to learn, I cannot force you to be motivated by something. And so I don't want to be sending the message that that somehow is possible. So the question then becomes, how do we increase the strength of that light? How do we increase the strength of that intrinsic burn and flame? Well, I would have to imagine you teach it in your curriculum. But but for me, the key theory that I look at, which has never failed me practically, is self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we as individuals want to be causal agents. By that, we want to be in control and thus cause the outcomes in our life, the behaviors in our life. We want to self-actualize, self-realize where we want to be. And you know, when we look at DC and Ryan, the two core authors for which the the the, uh, the credit of the theory comes, identified three core areas. And, and for me, these are are rich practical areas that coaches influence. Number one, we know is autonomy. You, know, you you gave a great example there. You talked about how important it is to allow the individuals you're working with to maybe even teach the session because they now start to see that they are in control. They have causation in their own life. Nobody wants to feel that they are simply a passenger in life. We want to feel that each step is our own. It's built into our DNA. And so by giving them that autonomy, you you add just a little bit of kerosene. You add a little bit of, uh, if you would, gasoline on that internal fire. And when we look at coaching Are there other ways to do that? Sure. We know things as simple as, hey, you know, do you want to do circuit A or circuit B? Pick which mini band you want to use. Hey, we have low, medium, or high hurdles for your plyometrics. Pick whichever one you want to start with and then progress up. Let me know when you want some feedback. Here's two cues, pick the one that you like. Hey, here's the error, you come up with your own cue and we could just keep on going. And so it doesn't mean that you have to write the program but I can facilitate your experience of the program with a number of autonomy access points. So autonomy. Number one, number two is this bandura, right? This whole idea of competence or self-efficacy for me to be motivated by something. Motivation is a motive. It's an energy. I am pursuing. It's an action. It's an activity. I, I participate participatory as we say in my motivation. Well, why is that important? Well, imagine you're going on a walk and that walk is a, a circle. It's a one mile circle, let's say, and you only get halfway and you're just stuck there. You, you can't take another step forward. Inevitably, you stop trying. So motivation needs oxygen, just as fire needs oxygen. That oxygen is your sense that you are improving that you know that you can do this skill. Even if you have a day where you fail, someone who has high self-efficacy doesn't see themselves as a failure. They know that they can continue to pursue, they know the skill is inside of them. So cultivating competence in how we use positive feedback, you know, feed-forward oriented language. Rather than saying, Jordan, you didn't do this, I might say things, hey, on your next rep, focus on. So I can continue to scaffold your sense of competence. And then the final one, which credit to you, I think you articulated brilliantly and you said the important word, community or relatedness. We, a community, again, is baked into our genes, our DNA. We like to work with people and around people, be a part of something bigger than ourselves and pursue something for the common good, even if that common good is just the joy of three people working together in a gym. And so to the degree that we can create relatedness, community connecting to something bigger than ourselves for a common goal, that community adds energy to me. I'm having a down day, but Jordan, you're having a great day. Our relationship, I can get something from that. But equally, it comes back in return. You're having a down day, hey, let's get to the session. We've got it today, and I lift you up. That's just an example of where community plays a role. People ask, why is CrossFit so, uh, so let's say popular? For me, it has nothing to do with the training, nothing to do with training. It has everything to do with the community they have created. And so there you go. Community or relatedness, competence or self-efficacy, these are synonyms, autonomy or, or self-control. These are the three ingredients that are like a blowtorch. They boost the fire, the intrinsic motivation of the individual. Not having those variables, So literally the inverse, is how you put the flame out.
0: Yeah, if you, if you don't feel like you can get into the group, you're not gonna obviously be motivated to be in the group. So if CrossFit is not, if you see CrossFit as this very aggressive form of sport and that intimidates you, that's, you're not gonna be motivated to do that. So you're gonna find something, maybe more your style, maybe more your flavor of the week type of thing, where people are kind of constantly changing their behaviors on ba- based on what other people are doing and where the trends are going. And you know that kind of relates a little bit to adversity, right? And diversity and, and diverse athletes. And that's kind of where I was going to go next was how do you coach, you know, diverse athletes, or what examples can you share with future coaches who may encounter diverse situations? You know, we have people kneeling for the flag. We have uh, people that have, uh, new, you know, are on the platform and speaking uh, to the crowds. You know, as coaches you know, how do we lead in, in these diverse and adverse uh, times?
1: Really good question. I have not been asked that question before. And so my, my, my pause is one of a pause to give it a due consideration because it's an important one the the first thought that comes to mind. And for me, this would be a philosophy of life as much as it is a philosophy of coaching. And so we use phrases like we need to meet people where they're at. We use words like individualization. We use phrases like seek to understand. I said things earlier like shared meaning. And so these are all ways to get at a simple fact. And that is we are always acting and operating from within ourselves with a unique perspective, a unique set of views, right? And a a unique set of biases as well. And so when we observe another individual that is different in any way, I believe it's a critical part of of us as humans and humanity to seek to understand before we, we judge, before we put our own perceptions, our own biases on them. We are trying to understand the people in the world around us in their real state as they are, not as we think they are, not as we think they should be, but as they are. And that by definition is, is empathy. Empathy is not sympathy, right? Empathy is, can I seek to understand your lived experience? And and, and in certain, certain lived experiences, it would be impossible to empathize with because I don't have, you know, can, can well, Certain features might be difficult. So for me, but empathy is, it's at least the effort. Empathy is the effort to seek to understand who you are. And so why is that important in the context of your question? Well, I'd like to think as a coach, I've always you know, applied this approach. And that is, I try to get to know the person inside the player, right? I try to get to know the person inside the player. What are your likes, your dislikes, your preferences, your views? you know, and I'm trying to understand these why so that I can coach from your perspective, right? If I coach from my perspective, that would be helpful if I'm coaching myself, (laughs) but it's your perspective. It's your filters. It's your words, phrases, and unique experiences that you use to understand the world and thus understand the language that other people use to describe it. And so when I get to know somebody, it is, selfishly and unselfishly so that I can coach them from their unique perspective, their unique worldview, so that I can help them learn the skills for which I am an expert, but through the lens of something they're very familiar with. Language, examples, phrases, emotions, and energies that they align to, that they prefer. And ultimately what that does is it lowers the barrier to learning it increases the odds of trust and relationship building. Now, people might hear that as, well. Is that not being manipulative? No. For me, it's being empathetic. It's saying that we all learn from a unique perspective. And as a coach, I have signed up to learn and get to know others' perspectives and let those.
0: All right, you cut out just the last 10 seconds there. (laughs) But...
1: Probably blacked out there, so I don't know if I can say that
0: again. No, I think I I understand what you mean as far as just seek to understand um, your players first and and that's just your number one priority as far as um, working with your athletes. Um, And then kind of, you know... Piggy, piggybacking off of that and going into your athletes currently, how many do you work with athletes currently and how many do you work with or, and how is that working uh, in these types of times of, with the COVID?
1: Yeah, so so the structure, the structure of my role is a little bit different. It would almost be, I guess the best way to think of my role is if there was a, a high-performance director for a college athletic department and that you might have that call it lead S and C works across the diversity of sports. That is similar to how my role is structured and that I work across four professional rugby teams. And so that means the head of athletic performance in each of those teams, you know, I work directly with, from a leadership perspective, but that equally we have national teams. So there's men's and women's sevens, which most people will now know seven circuit, Vegas sevens and the Olympics, as well as 15s. And it all relates to how many players are on each side of the pitch which in America you would call field. So when we look at that, I work across all of those entities. Um, insofar as my own coaching, I'll primarily plug in with our sevens program and run speed sessions for both the men and the women. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at anywhere between 15 to 20 players in those, in those sessions. And we're usually doing one major, let's say speed session a week. So I don't do a ton of coaching, not nearly as much as I did when I was at Exos, preparing athletes for the NFL Combine. But uh, you know what, what? it does give me is enough of that platform to keep the sword sharp. The rest of my time is in a leadership role, you know, working and supporting a staff of around thirty-four S&Cs and sports scientists across those various teams. Make sure we're doing what we need to do to uh, to put the best player out on the pitch.
0: Okay, and as far as the skills that you're currently teaching, which, are, which is specifically speed, what are some cues you, you always keep saying, or what, are you, what cues are you working with right now when it comes to speed?
1: Yeah, so for those that might not be you know, familiar with, with how we look at or break down linear speed, if we start there, you know, the, the simplest way f- for us to look at it is obviously we have what we might call short speed, which is, let's say, zero over 10 yards, and then your long speed, which might be 15, 20 yards and beyond. We call that acceleration and maximal velocity. And so the key thing for acceleration is, you know, we're we're really looking at three different categories. No, I should say four different categories of cues based on the person's primary issue. So category one is, you know, are they struggling to push the ground back? Or are they struggling to drive their leg forward? Or are they struggling to organize an effective posture? Or are they struggling to organize effective arm action? Now, usually if you have a problem in one area, symptoms of that problem will show up everywhere else. And so this is where a coaching eye is required to identify which of those four areas, if cued effectively, will generate an improvement that helps the whole system organize a better movement pattern. And so for our purposes today, since we're not watching the video and giving a specific case study, let's maybe give some examples of each. And so when it comes to pushing base cues, you know, simple things like push the ground away or explode off the ground, or I might even put an analogy behind them and say, I want you to imagine there's a rattlesnake two feet behind, Beat the bite. Beat the bite. Uh, We'd also use an analogy of, I want you to imagine that you have a massive, let's say, lifting band that's around your neck and around your feet. And that band is trying to shrink you. Break the band. Break the band. And so those are examples all for the push. And I should say they emphasize the push. And they emphasize the push still within the whole of sprinting. Well, what about front side? The person that doesn't bring their leg forward enough. Three major ones that we will use. One is drive your knee forward as if to shatter a pane of glass, and I'll kind of you know do a loud clap and say, break the glass. I use a lot of snapping as well, so my cues will typically have some kind of a an energy, a noise that flavors it, that colors it. Um, We'll equally, you know, the Irish like boxing. So we'll talk about sparring mitts. I want you to drive your knee forward as if you're hitting a sparring mitt. I'll bring sparring mitts out to training sessions to actually have them in that high and they'll smack up through it from a knee perspective. I call those physical analogies. Anytime I can generate a physical experience and then reference it again later on, that's creating a physical analogy. Uh, the other two cues we'll use, one of which is very effective, is you know explode out like you're sprinting up a set of stairs. That in, imagine that in your mind. If you're getting upstairs and you don't drive your leg forward, right? Your, your your chin are gonna your chin or your teeth are gonna get to know the edge of those stairs pretty quickly. So we can start to make some jokes around no no chin music. Equally, we'll talk about sprinting up a hill. So it, get up the hill, same idea. You imagine there's a steep hill in front of you. Now. Of all the cues I've just given you, the get up the hill one works almost universally. That that gets everybody thinking out and up very fast. So that one works really, really well. In terms of posture, for me, I don't have to coach a lot of posture in the sprinting with those cues I've just given you. Posture tends to organize itself pretty well, but I'll give you a secret sauce cue. And I don't normally use that term, but it is a secret sauce cue. Um, in, In my book... I have 27 different movement grids. And in each of those movement grids, I have a section about what I call Q tape.
0: So, pa- you know, yeah, I many, got that. What page is that on?
1: Well, any and all of it. If you go, just go to the uh, the sprinting. I, I can give you the page right now. It's us compare notes. you go to. Uh, <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, go to page 255. You know, I think it's being recorded. So. This Sorry. is the page we're talking about here with the, with the sprinting. Okay. And so, and again, right? I mean, Jordan, here you go. You can see what we're talking yeah. about. Cues for, for posture, yeah. leg action, push, leg action, punch, and arm action. But from a posture perspective, what you do, I mean, this, this works so, so well and so quickly. You put a piece of tape on a person's upper back, just, you know, your basic tape. Right. Put it on their upper back put it on their lower back now you have to ask them the following questions you say show me what you would do to get the tape far away and if they kind of flex you're like okay yep show me how you get the tape close and they kind of yes exactly and then all you tell them to do is slam the tape together when you get off the line boom it's un- it works <laughs> i mean it is like you know it's 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 penicillin for a posture yeah <laughs> And it works really well. So those are those are examples. And in terms of arm action, arm action, you don't really have to cue. The big thing for me is with arm action is get them in what I call the loaded position. So if you if you get them to learn to stretch, that stretch creates the feedback of then the release. And so then the cue is just release the tension or smash the arms back, something to that effect. Um, but, but very rarely do you have to overcoach, over cue the arms the one thing i'll say uh, not to get too deep here in sprinting but the one thing about arms is if if we are doing a lot of bench press and we're doing a lot of bicep curls and they're starting to get caved in a lot of athletes struggle then to have the the arm clearance exactly when they run so being able to actually check external rotation you know pec minor thoracic extension usually if you create the room for the shoulder girdle to do its job mm-hmm. it'll do its job mm-hmm. so
0: yeah, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a functional range conditioning uh, mobility specialist, which is one of my certifications I got, you know, which is part of the functional range system is a mobility system. And, you know, it's a whole basic assessment with like thoracic spine, glenohumeral, elbow. Um, it's got tons of levels and progressions. And I, I definitely recommend that. I don't know if you've ever heard about functional range systems with uh, Dr. Spina. Andrew
1: Spina. I, I know Spina very well. Yeah, great guy.
0: Yeah. Great work. Um, but I wanted to give you a more chance to talk about your book. Um, also, I had some other topics we probably won't get to today, but topics like John Wooden. I know you uh, know a lot about John Wooden and talking about success, physical literacy. Yeah. And then I want to talk maybe a little bit about your routine. But as far as your book goes, we are going to be talking about this in class. And um, we are going to be kind of lecturing about that and discussing it. What... What are some, well, I guess maybe four things that you want people to take away from this book when they're done learning it? Or I know it's not your, you know, you, you pick it up and, you know, I'm the type of person that, you know, the pictures, they just grasp my attention, right? And then a lot of the learning is, is, is reading it. And we know that uh, kinesthetic learners or, you know, a lot of phys ed teachers and personal trainers. You know, some of the learning is a little bit um, hard, and so how can we, you know, motivate people to, you know, dig deeper into the science and, and a lot of the aspects in here are a little bit complex, you know, and and not to say that it's, it's hard to learn, but you have to really be paying attention and focusing on what you're learning in this book specifically. This is very detailed, and it has a very simple, uh, I love the, you know, the pictures. You know so what would you recommend you know as far as people when they're going about um learning this book what would you really want them yeah. to take away yeah,
1: yeah. you're 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 so there's there's a couple different layers to that question but i think what i want what i want to get to is basically how, how do you if you if you like the idea of what the book is about uh how do you navigate it is kind of what i'm what i'm hearing and some advice for that and what will you what will you learn if you navigate it correctly so Let's start with very simply, what is the book about? Now we've, we've been talking about it in principle, but we haven't named it. So let's name what the book is about. Very simply, the book is about the following. It's how the language you use as a coach or a parent or a teacher, doesn't matter. So it's how the language you use as a movement professional, let's say, when you are teaching movement. So language intended to help them move better. That's what we're talking about. It looks at how your language ultimately creates a focus. It puts an idea in their mind, right? And you can all imagine how you have experienced a teacher or a coach. That's their experience when you're working with that athlete. And so your words turn into their focus. Ultimately, that focus, the way they focus impacts the way they move in the moment. Does it make it worse? Does it make it better? Or does it make it no change at all? And then also how that change ultimately results or doesn't result in long-term learning. So in summary, how do our words impact their focus, impact their ability to move now, but learn to move in the future? It is the coupling of what to coach and this now considers how to coach it. So it's a book about how to coach. And if we think about our own educational journey, whether driven by yourself or going through a degree program. So much of what we learn about is around what to coach biomechanics, anatomy, program design, drills, exercises, so on and so forth. Yet the mechanism to get that information off the program and into the person comes primarily through this thing that we call our voice, our mouth. And so this is why for me, language is so central, even though it is not the only way to teach, nor do I suggest it to be the only way that we teach. It is a central way that we influence the learning experience. So that's what the book is about. So people think, wow, I want to learn to become a better communicator. I want people to get better now and in the future because of the way I verbally coach them. Then this is the book for you because for me, I wrote it because it did not exist.
0: Right. And yeah. I wrote
1: it primarily for the, the coach that I was yeah. up and coming. Okay, so that's 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 the, the elevator pitch. Now, the book has three sections, learn, coach, and cue. So the first three chapters are really for those that want to understand the core science of how we learn. Now, Jordan, I don't know if you've read the whole thing or, or where you're at in the book, but the key thing that I'd like to share with people is Are the concepts, for some people, new? Sure they are. This isn't a topic talked about a lot, even though it's ever present in how we talk all the time. So there's gonna be new concepts. I have worked very hard, and ultimately the crowd will tell me if I was successful, in trying to, as Einstein said, make the concepts as simple as possible, but no simpler. At the end of the day, you can only simplify something so much until you get to the point where you've changed what it is. And so the entire book uses story, uses narrative, uses examples that invites you in and says, what would you do in this circumstance or what might you say, or how would you respond? And so you don't have to, as I say, you don't have to hold your breath very long before I bring you out into the shallows with an analogy, a visual or an example. And so you could correct me or Jordan, but that's how I've tried to write it. So does it take time? Sure. Anytime you're learning something brand new for the first time, it takes time. But I wanted to make sure that the way the book was written was not part of the reason that it would take time because I want the book to simplify the learning process, not make it more difficult than it needs to be. And so chapter one really covers memory, attention and learning, the building blocks, of learning anything, we gonna jump in there, Jordan?
0: Uh, no, no, you're you're good, you're good. Um, I was saying, I was I was gonna say that you know everything that I have read throughout the book, like you said, brings along an analogy and it brings along with um you know pictures and and visualizations and I love the tape idea and getting the the athletes to recognize the tape and and using that as a guide. Um, what, what other um, cues do you find in the book that you, you tend to use a lot in your coaching or when you're working with program design?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if I can, before I answer that one, I just want to finish answering okay, go
0: ahead.
1: original question. And so uh, if, if section one, again, is, is called you know, learn, those are your building blocks. Now you're like, OK, I, I know that people have to pay attention to learn something. Uh, when they learn something it goes into our memory and these are these are some of the key things that we need to know to capture and keep attention because that's what coaching is if i don't have your attention there's no possibility for learning you know if you want to dance on, on if you want to dance you need to listen to the song and so i need to have a way to get you in the club and that's what i am as a coach i'm trying to get your attention on the right things section two of the book which again is three chapters we we call that coach and that basically is composed of three models and these three models, if you would, that's the heartbeat of the whole book model. Number one is called the coaching communication loop model. Number two is called the three D right cueing model. And then the last model is just simply put the analogy model. And so the coaching communication loop looks at how we communicate within a session, the three D queuing model, how we create these external cues that we're talking about Jordan and the analogy model. How do we create these visuals that drive learning? Everything's evidence based and experience based. And then the final section, as, as you've shared now on screen, are basically just the examples 27 movement grids that apply those models, analogies, 3D queuing, and the coaching communication loop, with one chapter on behavior change. You know, the chapter before we get into any of the visuals is hey, I'm a coach. I love this, I understand it. How do I make sure this becomes part of who I am? And so I leverage the the work of you know Tiny Habits, BJ Fogg, Atomic Habits, James Clear, and basically completely take their information, put it into the context of coaching language and communications. A here is a, a six week process to upgrade your coaching skill behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So, case in point, that's what people would be be getting. It, it is it is a book that's meant to guide you as a coach throughout your entire career mm-hmm. it's one that i would hope people could pick up again and again and again you can you can jump to the back and just use the cues with the pictures but guess what jordan those cues are synthesized based on all the science right noted earlier in the book right. or if you're like hey i want to be able to generate my own cues great start with part two if you're like man i want to really understand this i want to know the bedrock principles start with section one You know, you could really jump in anywhere, but I did write the book like fiction. I wrote the book from beginning to end to tell a complete story. And so I hope most people inevitably get from beginning to end. Um, Insofar as your question then on cues, I'm going to be honest, that's a loaded one for me because there's probably 500 cues in the book, Jordan. (laughs) I'd have a very difficult time. But if you give me a movement you want to talk about, I'd be happy to zoom into one of them.
0: Okay. Um, Well, I mean – we don't really have to go too much into queuing. I uh, maybe want to get on another topic of like just uh, cardio respiratory training in general. Do you recommend people to walk and not to jog, but to run and to sprint and try to stay off the jogging? What do you recommend as far as walking, jogging, sprinting as far as the athlete is or, or just yourself?
1: Y- you know... <laughs> In, in what in what context, Jordan, are we talking about? Are we talking about the, the physical development for a team sport, for general fitness on your own? Let's you just,
0: thinking? I mean, let us, we're both 36, you know, how should we be, uh, you know, I mean, our goals are to, you know, be able to live without pain and, you know, you know move our bodies when we're 60, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, what would be some general guidelines as far as cardio respiratory training you would maybe impose yourself or you would...
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll go, I'll go right on back to, you know, first I'll say that that is not my area of expertise. So my reading of that space is, you know, to to, to the degree of following the basic science and leveraging people who I know who really understand where it is at. So I don't want to pretend to, to putting information out there that I would be feigning as an expert, but I'll tell you what I, I do know. And that is, I used to, when I used to work at Exos, there was a coach there named Paul Robbins. And and now Paul Robbins is an international phenom when it comes to cardiorespiratory training. And he always had a a three-component model, which was basically your your high, medium, and low day. And so your low day was your sub-anaerobic threshold, cardiovascular, kind of your long and slow, just building your, your, your base type work. But knowing that there's many variations to go about doing that. Your medium day, let's say, would be intervals kind of sitting right at your anaerobic threshold. Get up there, come back down. Get up there, come back down. You could do that on-feet or off-feet conditioning. And then your high day is you were pushing the limits. You were going way above anaerobic threshold as intense as you can. Those might be, let's say, 15 to 30 second type sprint efforts, not sprinting in terms of sprint running, but in terms of all out efforts. Whereas you'd have your 30-30 day and then maybe your 60-30 day in terms of intervals. But virtually the whole thing was, was interval based. And so I think to the nature of the question, it's interval based with variation in the intensities of the intervals and the rest. But for me, my morphology, if you would, responds far better to to strength training in, in terms of my actual, let's say, how I feel. And so for me, you know, I, I like to get a lift in every other day and probably sandwich between those a jog, you know, rightly or wrongly. Do I always go out and do the interval work I should? Probably not. But for me, I like just for a general cardiorespiratory and more of a psychological piece. I like going out for a, you know a three to five K jog mm-hmm. and then getting in a a, a strong interval based you know as heavy as i can with covid lifting at home workout you know in 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 my house and so that's kind of my more of my personal approach than would be any kind of recommendation people have to 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 take on for themselves
0: okay and um you know any of the subjects you want to touch on uh john wooden i know that you have gotten into eastern foster you that's probably a rabbit hole and then i have physical literacy. And, you know, that's kind of like a new term showing up in physical education and teachers need to be cognizant of physical literacy. But a lot of people don't know what that means. Is there any, you know, anything you want to talk about before we head out today?
1: Listen, I, I'm, I, I'm happy to, you pick the one that you're most interested in because yeah, Eastern, Eastern philosophy. I didn't think we'd get that brought up. But yeah. yeah. That's a huge, divine uh, movement literacy. We talk about mm-hmm. that a lot here. With Irish rugby
0: and a big fan of John Wooden, so you you pick it. Um, I let's let's talk about uh, John Wooden and you know his philosophies of success. Where obviously don't go to bed, or or analogy, you know, don't go to bed without thinking that you've done everything that you could do that day. Become successful at what you're trying to be successful at. Um, What are some other Woodenisms that you kind of are always thinking about, or maybe? Um, some philosophies like John Wooden that kind of like keep you motivated today that you're thinking about all the time?
1: Well, you know, for for me, for me, John Wooden has been a, call it uh, an intellectual mentor around Mm -hmm. how to coach. So I seek and take on his information less, let's say for personal motivation and more for motivation on how I can better interact and influence others. And so the quote I use of his more than any other, is you you haven't taught until they've learned Mm -hmm. and i just the the wisdom the wisdom in those words as a movement professional cannot be overstated because inherently if you trust and believe and live by those words all the information you need to know how to be a better coach is right in front of you because if every day you're interacting with someone and that interaction is not generating a net improvement in ability such that they can express that ability without your your prompts, reminders or feedback. Right? That's what learning is. You now own the change. You don't need me to access the change. If you need me to access the change, you have not learned. And so therefore, if teaching is defined by your ability to own the change that the teaching is meant to promote, you know, that evidence is clear in front of me. As long as I look up from the program and at the person. So, so that would be a woodenism that is profoundly impactful on me as an individual and a coach as well as a coach educator. The other one is more in his behavior. You know, you one of the things he did that many people don't realize is he was always seen as someone that 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 maybe not talked a lot but valued instruction. He was an instructional coach. But I think what many people don't realize is the way he used instruction, at least from my own reading of his work, is different than how many people use instruction. And here I'll even reference myself. When I was an up-and-coming coach, even once I had reached a fair level, I would call it as as I see it. And so if you happen to make a mistake on that rep, I'm cueing it. On the next rep, if you make a different mistake, okay, now I'm cueing that. And so it was like I shot anything that moved versus what Wooden would do is he would watch his players meticulously. He and his coaches, before they would ever get on the court, would know the dominant mistakes or the big areas for growth on each of their players. And then they would preemptly write down the cues or the phrases they might use so that they guess what so they wouldn't have to stop practice so that they wouldn't have to threaten the physiological development that came with the speed with which he played a full court game and so it looked to the naked eye that they were just yelling out these phrases but these phrases had been considered with great depth and precision and priority before they get ever went out of the court And so that's exactly how I now coach. I don't just coach frivolously. I make sure I understand your priority. And I'm not coaching anything else that lives less than that priority. It decreases the amount of information I ultimately give you. It focuses the information on building one concrete skill. And it also allows us to really chase the improvement of one thing which is far easier than trying to simultaneously improve three or four. And so the goodness that comes from that call it precise-based coaching can't again be overstated. And so those are just two, let's say, woodenisms that for me are, are quite important. And the final one would be people well, sometimes it's put as a joke on him as being kind of this Milton coach that he taught people how to put on their socks and tie their shoes. But for me, he is by definition the exemplar of why fundamentals are so important. That every complex skill, every complex action in our biology, in psychology, in society is built on the interaction of fundamental particles, interaction on the fundamental entities, or in sport, fundamental skills. And too often we like to focus on the sexy stuff, the fun stuff that is nothing more than a byproduct of getting the fundamentals right. And so the biggest thing you can take from John then is, well, for Coach Wooden I should say, is understand the fundamentals of anything and everything you do. Before I started to write my book, what did I study meticulously for almost a year? How to write, right? Sure, I read all the articles and the research, but I read memoirs on writing because for me, that's like putting on your socks and tying your shoes before you go to write an article or a book. So ask yourself, what are the bedrock fundamentals of anything and everything that I'm trying to do well? Attack those and you'll be better for it.
0: Yeah, and it, just, it just goes down to how you prepare and how much of that effort you ti- you prepare yourself is quality efforts, not just – random efforts, uh, you know, planned efforts, meticulous efforts. Like you said, I, I think I think there was someone said that he would plan two hours, you know, he would take them two hours of practice, an hour of practice. You know, and like you said, he, they knew exactly what they were going to say, kind of like a football coach on the sideline, you know. They know exactly what they're going to do. They're adaptable. And I don't think physical education teachers do that enough for their students in the K-12 through setting. So I think that is an issue where I think physical education teachers are going to learn a lot from this book. Because like the analogies that you reference, it's really going to help develop that, um, that discussion of what they should be learning and, and ways that they can be learning it. So um, I do appreciate your time. I know your time is very valuable. And uh, I, I thank you again for uh, speaking with me. Do you have any questions before we head out today?
1: Well, Jordan, this, this was great. Um, I appreciate a platform to maybe reach a, a broader physical education community for me you're spot on you know physical educators are at the front line of, of establishing the joy and the love of movement that we know we want to see all humans have through a lifetime and so if my book can add to that great work and, and arm people with a richer vocabulary to draw in enjoyment and understanding and shared meaning as we say you know for, for me the, the pleasure is all mine so thank you
0: I appreciate you Have a great rest of your day, and um, I appreciate it again. Awesome, Jordan. All
1: Thanks. the best,
0: man. Thanks a lot.